Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get to today's interview, I wanted to ask for your help. If you're free on Friday, May 7th at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, I'd love for you to join me and the rest of Dougie Center for our annual reflection benefit. All of our peer support group services are offered to families who are grieving at no cost for as long as they want to attend. In order to provide these services, we rely on community funders to support our programs, including this podcast. There will be stories from folks who have participated in our programs and items up for auction, including artwork created by children, teens, and young adults. This year's theme is What Brings You Joy? And I don't know about you all, but after this past year, I can use all the ideas I can get for finding joy. Thanks to pandemic ingenuity and necessity, the event will be live streamed, so you can tune in from anywhere. If you're available on Friday, May 7th at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, RSVP now at our website, dougy.org. If you do decide to join us, be sure to say hi to me in the chat. Okay, here's today's episode. So I just checked the Johns Hopkins University COVID-19 dashboard, and as of today, April 29th, 2021, over 3 million people across the globe have died of COVID-19. That includes almost 575,000 here in the U.S. Right now, depending on where you live in the world, case counts are either surging or declining. But what continues to get lost in these staggering numbers are the actual people, the lives they lived and lost, the jobs they loved and the ones that they hated, the dreams that came true and the ones that were cut short, their passions and their pet peeves, and most of all, the family and friends left behind to grieve. Sandra McGowan-Watts and her daughter Justice are two of those left behind. Her husband Steve died of COVID-19 almost a year ago on May 8, 2020. Around the same time that Steve died, his mother died, Sandra's mother-in-law, and his mother also died of COVID-19. Sandra's experience is similar to so many others who have had family members die of COVID, unable to be by their sides in the hospital, getting daily updates from nurses and doctors via the phone, navigating treatment options, making a heartbreaking decision to stop life support, and grieving without the rituals and routines that we've come to expect when someone dies. Sandra and Justice faced many of these same complications, and now they're figuring out how to do life without Steve, without the husband and father who did so much for his wife and daughter. Justice is learning to cook, just like her dad, and Sandra is figuring out how to get the lawn mowed, the house clean, and everything else, all while working as a physician. In our conversation, Sandra and I talk about what it was like during the two weeks Steve was in the hospital. We also talk about how the many conversations that she and Steve had prior to COVID about end of life and what he wanted 
really helped her when she had to make those painful decisions, knowing that she was honoring his wishes. Sandra also shares about the connection and community that she's found virtually through online support groups. Sandra, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with me today for Grief Out Loud. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. I, I want to talk about Stephen, your husband. Tell us a little bit about him and how did the two of you meet? Um, so funny story of how we met. Steve worked with a cousin of mine. Well, my cousin's husband and Steve worked together. And I guess they were at work one day sitting around talking. And my cousin's husband thought he would be somebody good to connect me with. And he called his wife and his wife called me and said, your cousin is at work and has a friend he wants you to talk to. And so we talked on the phone a few times and went out on a, a date, few dates. One thing led to another and three or four years after that, we got married. So he and my cousin-in-law worked together as bus drivers for the Chicago Transit Authority. Um, as a person, how do I describe him? My husband is was the person that you would call the life of the party. Always was joking, always was happy, was the person who kind of kept everybody together, especially his family and friends. As a husband, I would say he was he was a protector and a provider. Um, we joke around the house now. He was like the fix-it man, the handyman. He did everything for us at home. So it's been quite an adjustment. Um, you know, you hear people talk about their spouses being their best friend. And I always say my husband wasn't my best friend, but he was more than that. He was my husband. He did what a husband was supposed to do. A good example of just the type of person he was. A few years ago, I decided I, I was working for a big healthcare organization and kind of just got burned out and tired of practicing medicine in a corporate type of environment. And I decided I wanted to quit my job. And I told him and I told him, I said, I want to start my own practice. And like I could see the wheels turning when I'm telling him what I wanted to do. And before I knew it, he had come up with all these designs about how our office would look. He would, you know, talk to the contractors, talking to everything. He did everything behind the scenes so that I could practice medicine and be the doctor. So he was that person who gave of himself for his family to make sure his family had all the things they needed. And then even when it came to our daughter, there were times when he, you know, took some time away from his own job so that he can help take care of her so that I can build up my practice and build up the business. So we would always joke and say that it was our family's business, even though it was a medical office and I was the doctor, it was a family business in all sense of it. That's him as a husband and as a provider, as a father, he was, I always say my daughter had him wrapped around her finger. Um, <laughs> he was her personal Uber. He would get her off the school bus take her to get some food. If she didn't want to stay at home with him, he would bring her to my job or they would both come to my job. If she, she's a gymnast, if she had gymnastics, he would take her to gymnastics. He would sit outside the gym and wait on her. He was just that father that was hands-on and always available. 
As you're describing him as a husband and as a father, I'm picturing him like the family coach. You know how the coach gets all the supplies and gets the snacks and like gets everybody ready for what they need to do so they can perform to their highest level out on the field or the court or whatever. And so I just picture him like making sure you and Justice had everything you needed to to do your best in the world. That's a good analogy. I didn't think about that. And I remember talking to one of his cousins after he had passed away, his cousin said, he said, although in the world sense of things, my cousin didn't do anything big in life, he left a legacy. He helped you build who you are and he helped his child become who she is. And so in that sense, he's left a, a mark on the world that you, that's there. I mean, that can never be taken away. And you think about like, people always think that they have to do something big themselves and have their names in the light to be this big person and you don't. It's what you do for other people. And he was that person. Yeah, that in a way that you and Justice are his legacy. Yes, yes, yes. And Sandra, I know, so Steve died of COVID-19, one of over, you know, at this point, 550,000 people in America who have died. And we get a sense of the number but we don't really know the stories of the people who died of COVID-19, of who they were in the world and how they lived, but also their experience with COVID-19. And just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what your family went through with it. So first, my husband's mother got sick. And my husband had been at her house a few days prior to her getting sick. And he's actually, he and his brother were actually the ones who took her to the hospital. So she went into the hospital on a Thursday. That Friday, she called me to say that the doctors wanted to intubate her and what was going on. And she wanted me to know so that I could tell her her sons. I came home and told my husband. Later that night, he started saying he had diarrhea and didn't feel well. And in my mind, I was like, okay, no, I don't think this is COVID. But then that next day he woke up, he had a fever. And he just said he felt tired. And that was a Saturday. And then that Sunday, he felt a little better. And as that week went on, he started feeling more and more ill. So this was in April of last year. So this was before we were testing everybody. This is when testing supplies were not, were in, weren't, were scarce. So they weren't testing people. The, the theory was if you thought you had been exposed, stay home. You only needed to be tested if you needed to be hospitalized. So by that Friday, he was still really sick. So I took him to urgent care. They did his vital signs. He was stable. His vital signs were normal. So they sent him home, but they tested him. That Sunday, which was Easter Sunday morning, he woke up and I could tell he was feeling sicker. And he was starting to cough and feel short of breath. After the day went on, he was more and more short of breath. And he came to me and he was like, okay, I don't think I can stay here anymore. I need to go to the emergency room. So I helped him get dressed, got him to the car, took him to the emergency room. Thankfully, the emergency room that I took him to, I'm on staff at that hospital. So people knew me. So they let me go back with them. Whereas in most cases, they weren't letting people go back. By the time I dropped him off at the door and parked the car, I came back in. He was already taken to the back because his oxygen level was in the 80s. They put him on oxygen through the nose, took his x-ray, blood work. His oxygen saturation went up. He was doing okay. He finally was like, you can go home. I went home. That was Sunday night. Six o'clock Monday morning, he called me and was like, I'm feeling more and more short of breath. 
even with my oxygen. I said, call your nurse and let your nurse know what's going on. He called his nurse. About an hour later, he texted me and was like, they're saying that I might have to go to the intensive care unit and have have a tool put in like my mom. And so as he's texting me this, I get ready to call. And he his, someone calls me from his cell phone. It's the nurse. And the nurse says, uh, is this Sandra? So he said, I want you to talk to your husband because we're about to intubate him. And I always have my patients call their significant others before we intubate because, you know, we don't know. So, you know, he talked to me, said, they're intubating me. I love you. Do whatever you have to do. About an hour later, I get a call from the doctor saying, your husband is really sick. We're a small community hospital. I really don't think we can give him what he needs. He needs a higher level of treatment. We want to transfer him to our bigger uh, tertiary care center. So they transferred him to another hospital that night. That night was kind of rough. He, his oxygen was going up and down, but they finally stabilized him. He was doing well for about a week and a half. He was still on a ventilator, but he was doing okay. Then his kidney started failing. So they had to put him on dialysis. Then a couple of days later, his oxygen was going down even lower, even with the ventilator. So then they asked me, could they do a special machine called ECMO? And ultimately what ECMO is, it's an artificial lung. It filters your blood and oxygenates your blood like your lungs would do. So he was put on that machine. And it essentially looked like he was just going to be on the machine for a couple of weeks till the pneumonia gets out of his body and he could breathe on his own. And about two weeks after he was put on that machine, he ended up having a bleed in his brain. And um, they did surgery to remove some of the blood, but he never would wake up after that. So ultimately, by the end of that week, we made the decision um, to stop the life support. So the last conversation you had with your husband was when he called to say they want to put me on the machine. Yeah. So the last time I talked to him was that day. The last time I physically saw him was the day we left him at the hospital. And even as a physician, because COVID was so new and we knew so little about it, even as a physician, they still wouldn't let me in the hospital to see him. So most of my communication was with the nurses and the doctors via telephone twice a day, at least twice a day, some days, three or four, depending on medically what was going on, if they needed my consent. And I had a couple of Zoom visits and a couple of times the nurse would put a, a speakerphone in his room so that he could hear us. Um, I will say that I know my husband got the best care possible and there were a lot of doctors, even talking to the doctors, and most of the doctors even said, it, aside from the fact that his wife is a physician, he's, my husband was 51. He's a 51-year-old man who essentially only has high blood pressure, no other medical problems. We're going to do everything humanly possible to save his life. I remember one doctor said, he was like, when I see your husband, I see myself. And I would want everybody doing everything possible to save my life so that I can go home to my wife and children. My wife is young like you. My children are young. I, we want to do everything. And he was like, trust me, when I tell you your husband is getting the best treatment that's known, he is. Several of the doctors called me and said, hey, 
I know you might think, well, why isn't he at the a big university hospital like the University of Chicago or Northwestern? Because we're in Chicago, he said, but trust me, I'm on the calls with doctors from these hospitals every day. And we're on calls with doctors from Spain and Italy, finding out what they know about the virus since they're a step ahead of us in treatment. And everybody is getting this treatment is normalized across this country at this point. So it doesn't matter where he's at. He's going to get the same thing. What was it like for you to not be able to be physically with him in the hospital? Um, That is probably was probably the hardest thing, because you know, as a wife, you feel like you're doing a dis, you're not showing love by not being there. Um, and so for me, I was seeing it through two different views, one being a physician and two being a wife and having to separate the two. So it was hard to only be able to find out how he was doing via telephone. It was hard wondering if he wakes up and I'm not there, is he thinking that we don't love him? Is he thinking that we don't care about him? Is he thinking that he's alone and abandoned? We wonder how do people really feel when they're intubated and they're alone. Sometimes they're some semi-conscious or they're, they can see what's going on. And I can only imagine being in this hospital room with all these machines beeping and then everybody's walking around in what looks like a spacesuit. Like, how does that feel? So for me, that was the hardest, one of the hardest parts is not being able to be there thinking as a wife, could I have comforted him more? But then as a physician, could I have done more as a doctor to say, hey, let's do this. Let's do that. So I had to separate Sandra, the wife from Sandra, the doctor. And through all of this, you have justice, your daughter. Yes. your 12-year-old daughter. And how were you talking to her at that, at that time about what was happening to her father? So I'm very open. I'm not, I didn't sugarcoat anything. Justice is a very mature 12-year-old. So it's hard to hide anything from her. And because there was really no school, she was with me all the time. So whenever I was on the phone with the doctors, she was pretty much right there listening. So she heard everything. And then she heard me talking to her grandfather and her uncles telling them what was going on. So she knew what was going on. She may not have really knew how severe it was, but she knew I would tell her, okay, daddy's not breathing well. They have to do a special machine. Daddy's kidneys aren't working. So they have to put them on dialysis. So I was explaining everything to her in terms that she could understand and being honest. I don't think I ever said, okay, daddy could die. That would be the only thing I didn't say, but I I was very honest with her and open with her about what was going on. What kinds of questions did she have for you? Honestly, she never really had any questions. She kind of shut down. Um, The only time I really saw her show any emotion was the Monday before he died, when they found out he had a bleed on his brain, I was at work. Mind you, I worked most of this time and I was at work. And when the doctors called me to tell me what was going on, after I got off the phone, I called his dad and I went outside my office to call his dad and she followed me outside. And I was walking, telling my father-in-law what was going on. And when I got off the phone, she just burst out in tears and started crying. And I think that was probably the first time it registered to her that he may not come back. And throughout all this, your husband's in the hospital 
What's happening with his mother, your mother-in-law? So she wasn't making any progress or getting any better. So it had gotten, when she first went in the hospital, my husband was the oldest. So he was her decision maker. And she pretty much wanted him to be the person who the doctors was talking to because she knew I would be there to guide him. So we kind of gave that over to my brother-in-law and my husband in the hospital. So my brother-in-law was taking care of her. I was taking care of my husband and the two of us were talking every day, but she wasn't getting better. And she actually passed away the week before my husband. And this is kind of an odd question, but were you able to tell your husband that his mother had died? No, we didn't. We were never able to tell him that. And my brother-in-law and I decided that we weren't going to tell him that his mother passed until after we knew he was going to get better. Interesting, you asked that my husband and his mother were very, extremely close. Um, I know parents don't have favorites, so I won't say she was his favorite, but he and her were really close, mostly because my husband stayed home longer because he didn't get married until later in life. We thought that it wouldn't be a good thing. Whichever of the two of them got better before the other, we didn't want to tell the tell them that the other one was sick because we knew we thought that it would prolong their getting better. So my mother-in-law, essentially, we never told her my husband was in the hospital. My husband never knew she passed away. And whenever I would talk to him or I would talk and I would, you know, he would be listening. I would say, your mom is okay. Because in my mind, I thought if he knows his mom is okay, it's going to make him get get better. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, I remember my daughter said early on, if my granny get better before my daddy, how are we going to tell my granny that daddy is in the hospital? Because in her mind, she knew that her grandma, my, my mother-in-law would have probably, who knows what would have happened if she would have found out he was in the hospital, if she woke up and made it out and he was in the hospital, because she would have felt guilty thinking she's the one who made him sick. So, I mean, there's so much about having someone be ill with COVID-19 and having someone die from COVID-19 that's complicated. And, and one of those factors, even if someone dies of a different illness or a different cause this year has been, how do we do the rituals and routines that we do after someone dies because of the restrictions because of COVID-19? And just wondering, what did your family end up doing in terms of marking your mother-in-law and your, and your husband's death around like a funeral or memorial or homegoing? Or how did you yeah, how did you manage that? So oddly enough, my husband and I have always had conversations about death and about what we wanted done. And he had even told his brother, if something ever happens to me, I want to be cremated. And he would even had gone as far as to say he didn't even want his body at a funeral. He always would say, cremate me and have a memorial, put a picture of me up and have a memorial. Oddly enough, the day my mother-in-law ended up being intubated, I was the person she talked to and she told me if something happens to me and I don't make it, don't have a funeral for me, cremate me and do something later. So we honored their wishes. We cremated them both and we waited until July. So they died in May. We waited until July when the numbers, the cases had gone down some and things had opened up a little and we had a small memorial with just family, just close family. So we could only have 50 people. So it ended up being a very small memorial tribute. We found a picture of the two of them together 
and we put it up and people just got up and, you know, talked and said things. It seems as you were saying that, that there was some reassurance or peace of mind knowing that you knew what your husband wanted and that you had that conversation with your mother-in-law too, to know that if we move forward with cremation, like we're honoring their wishes, at least in this way. Yeah. Um, and my husband and I did a lot of talk about, oddly enough, about end of life issues. So even when it came down to making decisions about what to do, that last week of his life, I was wrapping my brain around what to do. And one night I was sitting and I thought about it. My husband and I had done wheels and living wheels. And I went and pulled out his living will and his living will basically said, basically don't keep me on life-sustaining measures if I'm never going to be the way, you know, I used to be or life will never, you know, I will never live a normal life again. So it, I found comfort in being able to make the decisions of what to do. Um, I came to the realization that enough is enough. And I know that probably sounds bad, but I remember talking to the doctor the day they transferred him. And the doctor said, the last thing your husband told me, he said, your husband was crying when we got ready to intubate him because he was so short of breath. But he said, the last thing your husband told me is Sandy makes all the decisions. And I was just like, well, you gave me such a hard task. But then I remember we had these conversations and I was talking to one of his brothers during the time. And I said, because my brother-in-law made the joke, he, my, my husband always said he never wanted to have any type of surgery on his brain. So when we had to do the surgery on his brain, my brother-in-law joked and was like, that was all on you. When he get better, <laughs> I, I ain't had nothing to do with it. He said, you take, you take him one for the team with that because you told the doctors, yes, I had no, you called. By the time you called me, you had already agreed to the surgery. We was joking. I was like, I'm going to take that one. At the end of the day, if it saves his life, I'm just going to have to deal with it. And later that week, I was talking to another one of his brothers, and he was like, my brother was the life of the party. And it sounds like he, his brain is never going to function like it used to. And he said, what are we going to do? Just have him sitting in the corner. He's going to live a miserable life if he can't be who he was. And when he said that, I was like, that's true. We can't. Uh, we're keeping these life-sustaining measures for our own comfort. And not really because it's going to help him. I mean, as a doctor, I knew how bleak it was, but I still held on to the hope that, okay, he's going to get better. He's going to get better. But I know I'm, the right decisions were made because I know my husband would have never wanted to live like that. And it just seems like throughout this whole process, again, having to go back to what am I deciding as a wife? What am I deciding and thinking as a doctor and kind of living in these, both of these minds at the same time? And I'm wondering too, I know sometimes this becomes more clear with more time and more reflection, but just wondering like what stands out to you as unique about grieving when someone, two people in your life have died of COVID-19? One of the things I would say is that grieving during covid you don't have people around. Um, you don't have the support that you may have had had this been different times. So I think grieving is different because you feel isolated. Um, so for me, the hardest part was being isolated from you know family, from friends, from loved ones. Um, I, I, I think under any different circumstances, my father-in-law and my brother-in-laws would have been at my house or been here with us every day during this time so we could support each other. So I think that's 
what changes grieving. And I just think the whole losing a loved one to a pandemic, none of us have ever lived through a pandemic. So you don't really know what to do. You can't be there. You can't go to the hospital. You can't go out the house, really. You can't do this. You can't do that because everybody is isolated and just the thought of it and then watching the news, watching television when this is on rotation 24-7. So it has gotten to the point where or had gotten to the point where I wouldn't even watch television because I was tired of hearing about COVID. I had even gotten to the point where I didn't even want to talk to other people because people who didn't know what was going on to hear them making what I considered a dumb comment about COVID or the pandemic, or even the political ramifications of what it was. I mean, like when you think about the political climate in the country at the time and how this pandemic became a political issue. I mean, could the government have done more? What could have been done? Could Probably not a lot could have been done differently, but just dealing with all that has made grief different. Um, I, I lost my parents a long time ago. And when I was grieving their death, I had t- tons of family members around. Even after the death, this time, there very few people came to my house because we were on a lockdown. So it got to the point where my COVID, people talk about their COVID circle. So the only people that were really in my circle was my brother-in-law and his wife, my husband's cousin and his wife, my father-in-law and one of my husband's other brothers and his wife and my daughter. So within that isolation, I had read that you joined a Facebook group with other Black widows. And I'm thinking about there's so many stories now of people who the way they are getting the support is virtually. And I was just wondering what that experience has been like for you to be part of that Facebook group and and also thinking specifically about being able to be with other widows who are also Black and sharing your grief experiences. So I, I, I tell people all the time, finding the support group was probably the saving grace for me was the one thing that helped me get through it. Because when I think about grief, grieving the death of a spouse is totally different than grieving the death of a parent or a friend. And what I learned very early is when you lose a spouse, you're not just grieving the loss of that person, you're grieving the secondary losses. So here it is now I'm a single parent. Here it is now I have to maintain a household. Here it is now I have to take care of my business, whereas before, my husband cooked, my husband cleaned the house, my husband did all the yard work. So the only thing I did was work my own job and be a mother. So now I have to figure out how to do all those things, even things as simple as mowing the lawn or finding someone to mow the lawn. I tell people the snow was a trigger for me. This winter, I had a complete meltdown the first day it snowed and it was a substantial amount of snow outside because when my husband was alive, he would get up at six in the morning. Even when he was working still, he would get up before he went to work to clean the driveway to make sure I could get out the house. So having a support group and being able to talk about those feelings with other women who understood, they don't just understand grief, but they understand the loss of a spouse. And even as significant as other women of color or black women, we all grieve and everybody has the same loss, but I think dealing with, for me, this was helpful having a group of black women because not only were we going through COVID, but then the social injustices going on in this country and the Black Lives Matter movement and 
being fearful, is there going to be a race war? Am I going to be a target because I'm lack of something happening? So having other women who understand grief as well as understand what I'm going through in the social climate and also the cultural differences. I don't know what happens in other cultures, but I know in a Black family, when somebody dies, the whole family comes to the house. Black families, food is the center of everything. So when someone, when I think back to when my mother died, she died on a Sunday, that Monday, from that Monday till about two weeks later, every day somebody was coming to my house with, here's a plate of food, here's a pan of food, here's dinner for the next few days. And those are things that are centered to the African-American culture. So, you know, that, and then just having people coming over and most black families, when somebody dies, the person, if the person lives alone, from the time the person dies till the funeral, they're not alone. There's always a family member or a loved one around. So in COVID, I couldn't have that, but the support group helped because there were other women I can talk to who have been through this. And through this support group, I even found two women who hus- whose husband died of COVID at the same time as my husband. And one of them was at the exact same hospital a day apart. So we connected. And I still talk to these women every day, even if it's via text message. Hey, how you doing? Uh, my husband died on May 8th. So every eighth of the month and the other lady's husband died May 9th. Every eighth she texts me, hey, just checking in, how are you? Uh, you want to go to dinner? You want to catch lunch? So having that support has been good. I've even found other support groups. There are support groups for people who have lost a spouse to COVID. And then when I did the art, I did an article with the New York Times. And from that article, a, a physician reached out to me. There's a physician group with physician widows. So even having that has helped because different aspects of our life and the physician widows is unique in that we all have that we lost our spouse but yet we also have that bond in thinking did we do enough as a physician could we have done more to save our spouse you're a doctor how do you not save the person you love the most so I would say the support groups have helped tremendously and it seems to you such an important aspect of finding ones that really are representative of different parts of your identity. And so that yes. people can really put into words those unique aspects of this grief of being a physician, of being a woman of color, of having of grieving during COVID-19. And how about for justice? Like what has she needed in this past year and her grief from you, from community, like what's been helpful for her? Um, So it's really hard to say because she's so quiet and doesn't talk about it, but I got justice in counseling very early. Within a month of my husband's death, we were doing virtual counseling. And I think that has helped tremendously because it gives her an outsider to talk about her feelings with, because I feel like she keeps a lot of her feelings in out of not wanting to hurt me or make me feel sad. So counseling has helped give her an outlet of someone to talk to. I think the hardest part for her is being stuck in the house and being stuck with me all the time because school, her school is still pretty much virtual. Um, Like I said, she is a gymnast, so she does gymnastics still. We didn't stop that. A lot of people kept saying, well, you're letting her go to gymnastics in a pandemic. Aren't you scared she's going to get sick? 
but I knew from a mental health standpoint, keeping her out of gymnastics would have done more harm than good because that was her lifeline. That was something for her to get her energy out, to cope with it. And the other thing she started doing is cooking. Um, So my husband was the cook in the house. And a lot of times, even when I was at work, she would be home with him. And I found out she was watching him cook or helping him cook. So now she has become a cook. She like does these little tutorials that she puts on Facebook of things she cook, things she cooks. And she's actually a really good cook. I don't know if she'll be a chef one day, but I think she'll cooking will be a side profession for her. She'll go to college and become a lawyer and then also be a caterer as a side job. <laughs> with all her free time. <laughs> what right, with all of her free time. But she she loves to cook. And I noticed that. There are sometimes she cooks more than other times. And what her therapist told me is that when she's cooking more, it's probably because she's grieving and that's her way of expressing her grief. Justice sounds like so many of the kids and teens that I know from Dougie Center who words are not their first outlet for their grief. It's gymnastics, it's moving their bodies, it's cooking, it's being creative, it's talking to people that we're not directly related to if we are choosing to use our words to express our grief. So... Sounds very familiar. And I know you mentioned that Steve died on May 8th and we're coming up next. That's going to be next month will be the one year anniversary. And just wondering what you're noticing for you as, as we get closer to that one year date. So I'm noticing a little bit more feeling anxious and getting easily annoyed. Um, I'm finding that I have to turn the TV off more now because I'm starting to hear the stories of COVID and it's you know starting to stir up some emotions. This past week weekend was kind of hard because he went to the hospital on Easter Sunday, and then we celebrated Easter. Normally, I had been doing okay with holidays, and Easter was kind of a hard holiday. Coming up on that year is just bringing up all of the emotions, all of the playing back in my mind everything that happened each day from Easter Sunday till that Friday before Mother's Day when he passed. And it's a lot because I tell people when I think about that three or four week period of time, every day was the same day. I went, to, I woke up, I called the hospital to check on him. I got ready. I went to work. I may have had a few calls in the day with the doctors, left work, went home, cooked dinner or got dinner for justice, called the hospital to check on him, went to bed, woke up the next day and did the same thing over and over again. So, and even I think about there were times during that time when I didn't eat or I only ate because my kid said, hey, mom, you didn't eat. I don't want to call it anxiety, but there's some sense of being anxious right now coming up on that time and just thinking, what could we do to honor the memory of my mother-in-law and my husband? And also still, I play around with the guilt of could I have done more? Could I have made him go to the hospital sooner? And one doctor said it best to me, even if you would have gotten him to the hospital sooner, I don't think any of that would have changed the course of what happened because this disease is just, we don't know what it's going to do to what person. So he was like, the doctor basically was like, please stop putting guilt on yourself. That's unnecessary. Even there were some times I had the guilt of, was I the one who brought the virus home? And I'm the asymptomatic carrier because I never got sick. My daughter never got sick. No one else in the household got sick. And my household or my mother-in-law's household got sick. I've been thinking a lot of how with COVID, 
in this past year, so much of it was invisible in terms of the threat and, and here and thinking about like, where did it come from? And did I bring it home or did someone else bring it home? Or cause there's no way to really, I mean, sometimes there's ways to trace it, but just living in this last year of here's this threat, it's mostly invisible. And now thinking about the vaccines, that's also invisible, right? Like you just have, yes. you, know, you get this shot in your arm and then you're like, okay, I guess I'm safe now, but just, I just wonder like what that's like for us as humans trying to negotiate a world where there's both threat and then possible protection against threat. And both of those things are invisible. Yeah. That, that, I think that's the hardest thing for me. If I didn't have that aspect of it being a physician, my grief would probably be different. It would, I don't want to say be more sadness because I think it would still be some, I think having guilt, being in denial, blaming yourself are all normal things that we all do when we're grieving. So it would have just, I would have had some guilt about something different. But there's something about being a physician and knowing so much about medicine and about saving people and protecting bodies. And then to not to have been able to do that for the person that you loved so much. Right. Right. Well, Sandra, as we come to the end of our conversation today, is there any last thing you would most want listeners to know or to understand about what it's like to be a physician and a wife who has had their husband die of COVID-19 in this last year? Um, I would like, you know, to say, be gentle with them. Um, and I, I, I've said this all the time, just be a friend and be there. And that being there could just be sitting there or bringing some food or listening, calling and listening, or even just texting and saying, hey, I'm thinking about you. If you, whatever you need, let me know. I'm just thinking about you. So just being gentle and being kind, offering a hand in whatever way you can. If it's someone with children saying, hey, I can take your kids here today so that you can have a break. Just offering kindness and, you know, listening. Yeah, listening, kindness, and consistency seem to be things that kind of are threads for no matter how someone in our life has died, but thinking particularly about this year and the isolating factors that have been a part of your experience. And just finding ways to be there. You know, my deck, I have a deck on my house. We never hardly used it, but last summer, that was we would always be outside is big enough that people could sit six feet apart and you could have a number of people out there. So just finding ways to be there are people just coming over and standing out on the front porch. Getting creative about how to stay connected. That seems to also have been a theme for the last year. Well, Sandra, thank you so much for talking with me about your husband, telling me a little bit about him and sharing with me and our listeners about your experience and Justice's experience and for sharing some really helpful tips for how we can all be showing up for those who are grieving right now. I just appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on your show. And listeners out there, I say it every time, but thank you for being part of our community. If you uh, are new to the show, I'd love to hear from you about what it means to you. You can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. That's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. It's also, our website is also where you can find all of our past episodes, and that's just D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>